I have a friend who is in AA and he said he gets the same feeling when he smells stale coffee. He walks into an AA meeting, he smells stale coffee, and that becomes a Pavlovian trigger. I am going to feel better in 45 minutes when this feeling is over. And I think bars do the same thing for us. Simply going into that atmosphere immediately loosens us. Before any alcohol is consumed, we're already feeling more intimate. There's nothing more social than sharing a spritz with friends. And Spritzing Hour shares the stories of those who bring us together over great food and drink. I'm Claire Warner, co-founder of Acorn, a range of non-alcoholic aperitifs. And I'm on a mission to prove just how important great food and drink are in connecting us to one another. I want to expose the bitter truth from the rule breakers and game changers who are turning the table on traditional food and drink culture and reshaping our social lives for the better. I'll be hearing from chefs, growers, bartenders, writers, and a whole host of people who, like me, are curious and passionate about how we can enhance that simple act of grabbing a seat at the table and eating and drinking together. Hi friends, welcome to the Spritzing Hour, a brand sparkling new podcast where I'll be exploring the changing ways that food, drink and connection and our connection to each other is evolving. I'm Claire Warner, your host, and today we're looking at why we love to spend time with others. Could socialising actually save lives and what the future of connection could look like in an increasingly disconnected world? How we're designed for togetherness and how our rapidly evolving world is creating havoc with our biology. Now, the hospitality industry has been in the news a lot recently, and for good reason. We're in London at the moment, so we've just uh, headed into tier three. So I'm looking forward to chatting with my guests to explore the role that our bars, restaurants and hotels play in helping bring us together and what might that look like in the future. We'll try not to mention the sea world too much, uh, but it is a factor in how we will view togetherness in the not too distant future. And finally, we'll look at how technology is becoming a force for good in fighting loneliness exploring the implications for our future social lives although if I have one more zoom party zoom call uh, I don't know how social I'll ever want to be so for a conversation this far-reaching I need not one but two two big thinkers so I'm joined today by two brilliant in every sense friends of mine who have helped me explore everything from the DNA of martinis drinks in space why nature makes you happy and have promised to always be there should I ever need to phone a friend. So Tristan Stevenson is the author of the wildly popular Curious Bartender series, multiple bars, owner, operator, restaurateur, runner and recovering vegan. You've turned away from the vegan lifestyle I hear, Tris. Yeah, I started eating venison, um, <laughs> which is like the weirdest step for, it's a, it's a big leap from, a, from veganism for a lot of people because you think, well, you, you're suddenly eating Bambi. Like <laughs> going a little bit easier with a chicken or or, or a guppy, uh, with, you know, that doesn't have, you know, you know much sort of uh, self-awareness, but I have various sort of moral reasons for, moral and environmental reasons for eating venison. And uh, I'm not going to go into it on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> for another time. <laughs> Boy, we'll do another time. one on that. But hello, Claire. Thanks for having me. No, thanks for joining us. And I agree with you about venison, but again, for another time. And um, our other lovely big thinker is Jeffrey Kluger, otherwise known as Klugs, if I slip into common parlance during this uh, podcast. <laughs> but Klugs, Jeff, is editor at large for Time Magazine, senior science editor for Time Magazine, and author of many, many books. 
including, we have to mention it, Cludes, I'm sorry, yeah, including perfect. Apollo 13. People may or may not have heard of it. Uh, certainly when we became friends, I didn't know that you'd written that book. Uh, Tristan had to tell me that, so that's slightly embarrassing. But anyway, welcome, Jeff slash Klugs. Good to be here. And uh, I can say that I come into this um, as a proud carnivorous uh, meat eater. So <laughs> I have not had to segue back to venison or any other transitional meat product. <laughs> I'm here to eat animal flesh. Uh, hey, I'm, not, I'm not in transition. I'm, I'm, in, I'm static now. This is it. Okay. Vegetarian plus venison. So, um, yeah, don't label me as someone who's sort of learning my way around food. I've, I've discovered the truth behind everything and now fi- found the perfect diet. <laughs> I'm really worried that people are going to like dive into this podcast halfway through and think that this is going to be all about venison slash vegetarianism. <laughs> it isn't. It's about uh, the science of being social. Um, and I suppose we should start by, I don't know, maybe giving the audience a bit of background about you know, how we three became the pals that we are um, and have been for the last decade. Uh, Tristan and I have been friends for a little bit more than 10 years. And uh, I was surprised to, to, to realise, Klukes, that actually we've been friends for, for 10 years now. So, um, so, you know, on paper, we might not look like the, the most <laughs> obvious uh, three musketeers. Um, so, Tristan, what's, uh, how, did we, how did we meet? Did we meet at some random vodka Yeah, seminar? I'd say some random vodka. Could have been a party, <laughs> could have been a distillery, could have been a tasting event. Um, but I mean, well, one of the good things about our industry is there is a, a serious connection between everyone. We are um, almost like one, not necessarily unified, but organic body um increasingly so thanks to social media which i will now get into and so even if you've not met someone you sort of know them by association uh these days and i think i feel like i knew you before we met oh my god sounds like a poem uh <laughs> you know i'm married right <laughs> yeah, no, i'm well aware of that um so the edit function here <laughs> <laughs> so uh you know, it's it, when you do finally meet someone, as as we met, there's, you kind of know a lot about each other already, um, and have a pretty good inkling about whether you're going to click. So it's uh, in, for that reason, it's actually often quite difficult to pinpoint when you meet someone for the first time. And this isn't something that's um, you know specific to just our industry, but generally because we connect often digitally by mm-hmm. email or Facebook or Instagram, we follow one another or mm-hmm. are followed by one another. Um, it's it's increasingly hard to sort of work out when you actually do meet someone for the first time. And it, even if that is the meeting of the first time, or in fact, you met when you emailed, or you met when you messaged, or yeah. whatever. I do remember bringing you into my sort of Belvedere world uh, to give uh, some of the work that I was doing a bit more sort of gravitas and some sort of <clears throat> deeper thinking. <laughs> Well, that was where clues came in. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then when that didn't work, <laughs> we we decided to to bring in the big guns. But but no, I think you know, um, Tristan and I seriously we we did a lot of work on um, 
on the DNA of a martini. So we got stuck into kind of understanding whether or not some of the preconceived uh, notions of what we think about martinis were actually true, um, which led me to read a book called Simplexity. Um, and I'm sorry, Clues, if I get, get the subtitle wrong, but Simplexity, the the reason why complex things are simple and simple simple things are complex that is close enough and it's probably <laughs> better than the real subtitle we read it was such a great book um and so useful for me at the time because you know we were looking at all the different variables of um what is a, a simple drink the martini and in reading your book i uh, was able to kind of really think about the martini in a whole different a whole different way and then, you know, decided just to shoot you an email. Uh, I don't know if you remember receiving that email, Klugs. Vividly, yes. <laughs> and all I remember is, understand, when you are in the science writing world, there's a certain aridity to it. There's a certain dryness to the science reporting world. It can be thrilling, but it also can be very deliberate and very stripped of excitement. So when I get an email from a stranger named uh, Claire Smith, who says, hello, I am with, I'm the brand ambassador for Belvedere. Um, I'd be interested in working with you on a uh, seminar on the simplexity of the martini. I'm wondering if you would be willing to come to New Orleans for five days, all expenses paid, uh, to the greatest collection of bartenders, hospitality, um, professionals and bar owners in the world um, and work for basically one hour for which you will be remunerated with that interest. <laughs> I practically left a hole in the shape of my body in my office door. I ran out so fast to go to New Orleans. I have often said that taking a call from Claire Smith, now Claire Smith Warner, was one of the finest things I've done in my life. And two years <laughs> on, we are still best of buds. We are, we are. And I think, um, you know, this is what, uh, for me, being social is all about, you know. I've, I've, I've been doing a lot of reading and research around, you know, how, how difficult it, it can be for some people to be social and, and, how, um, and how isolated some people feel. And, um, and that notion of not being able to reach out. And, you know, for me, I've... I've really been so lucky in that um, I've worked in a very social industry um, and that, you know, sending a few random emails to people uh, to ask them to be my friend uh, actually has um, has paid off a lot of the time. Martinis obviously help. Um, so, <laughs> so that's... But, you know, there's other good non-alcoholic options available for those people who don't like martinis, which I'm sure we'll get into later. Um, so we're pals. We've talked about a lot of different things in, in our 10, 12 years of being friends. I think the link for, for much of the topics that we've talked about is how can we get people to really enjoy uh hospitality or being in bars or being in restaurants more how can they get more out of it how can they understand um you know what's in their drink how can they understand what the act of being social feels like or or can do for our our lives and longevity so there's that it's been that thread for us you know how can people get more out of their social lives would you agree? Yeah, I think it's, agree? it's I think the common theme through a lot of the things that we've talked about together both on and off stage 
is sort of like a meta-analysis of, of the hospitality industry. So it's kind of looking at the forces that drive the forces that, you know, make hospitality work, whether that's, um, you know, looking at the history of connection and, and the anthropology of the bar, or it's looking at what makes a martini tick. Uh, and, uh, you know, all of these subjects ask the listener uh, to sort of take a step back and really consider what makes these themes work, what drives, you know, appreciation of flavor or conviviality in a bar. And that's what I've enjoyed doing over the years with you guys and hope that we can continue to do going forward beyond this podcast and back on the stage again, uh, not, oh. not virtually, physically. No, physically, please. Physically, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, let's hope for next year. Um, so we are you know, by definition, I suppose, as human beings, a, a pretty social bunch. Um, and perhaps our sociability is, you know, even one of the things that makes us human. Um, and we, we know that, you know, there are other animals, mammals that are, you know, also collaborative and social. Um, but I think, I don't know, Clues, if, if you could maybe shed a bit like this, but the human species seems to be especially collaborative or especially social. We are especially collaborative and especially social. And a lot of that has to do with the idea that as the highest of all species, the highest of all primates, we're able to embroider on our sociability. We build traditions around our sociability. We build ceremonies around our sociability. We're not, you know, for a chimp or a bonobo, um, a social... A social encounter involves grooming the other, the other bonobo, the other chimp. We probably want to avoid that in a social space as humans. That's <laughs> not going to work as well. But we build bars around it. We build weddings around it. We build bar mitzvah gatherings around it. We build birthday parties around it. We build so many traditions around our sociability. And as we were talking about, um, it is not for nothing that... The Earth is, uh, you know, 7.6 billion people sounds like a lot of people. But in fact, on, on a planet with uh, the landmass that our planet has, 7.6 billion people uh, could be pretty widely dispersed. And yet of all of the, those people on all of that landmass, um, the overwhelming share of us live on just 10% of the landmass of the earth. And 50% of us live on 1% of that landmass in urban centers. So clearly, even for all of our, we're a combative species, we're a species that claims our own space, we're a species that bristles at people invading that space and yet we are primarily driven to come together to live as close as we can to one another even if you are not directly encountering people simply walking on the streets of a city with tens of thousands of strangers walking by you gives you a sense of primal fundamental belonging that we simply wouldn't have if we were a less social species than we are mm. i read somewhere that um Instead of grooming, we cultivated the art of gossip and conversation um, as an almost sort of faster way, a shortcut to uh, checking in or keeping pe other people in check. And so um, I suppose we need 
places to go to gossip, right? We need to, then that's essentially what hospitality is or has become, you know, these places where we go and we have conversations and we can connect with one another and gossip and uh, yeah, speak about other people or have affairs and all, all that sort of thing. So, so for that reason, you know, hospitality um, is sort of grooming parlor for, for the human condition, right? <laughs> I think it is. I think it is. And also there's something to be said about about gossiping. I mean, conversation is wonderful and benign conversation in which we are not dissing or otherwise betraying confidences of other people. It you know, certainly takes place in bars. But gossiping also does it does two things, I think. It widens the social net because I am informing you about people in your circle, in our circle that you may not know about. And you're informing me of information about people in our circle I may not know about. But we're also doing something faintly subversive. We're also doing something faintly naughty that we know we shouldn't be doing. So that bonds us in our mm. bad behavior. That brings us closer. I have three brothers. We are all extremely close. We're very close in age. And we have all accepted that whenever three out of the four are together, the fourth one is always going to be made fun of and ditched about. And that's <laughs> simply the understanding. And I, if, if I'm that fourth one, I'm actually interested in hearing what they said about it. I'm going to trash the other fourth one the next time it's just three of them together. So I think that's all part of this human behavior. Yeah. So, so Tristan, why do you think it's important that we 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 go somewhere else for this sort of uh, gossip communication? Why why do you think we just wouldn't be happy just doing it at home where we're warm and safe and we we familiar in familiar surroundings? Well, uh, a number of reasons. First of all, most people don't live with that many people. Uh, there's you know it's simply not the the number of human beings that I guess sort of satisfies. Um, your desire to socialize living under one roof, typically. Um, also, I feel, you know, it's sort of suggests point in a way, because some of the activities that take place in this kind of third place, this hospitality venue, be it a pub, a restaurant, a bar, are, um, you know, could be, could be, could be cl classed as a little bit naughty. Um, you want to remove that from your home environment. You want it to feel like this sort of second home that allows you to exercise some of your vices and you know let loose a little bit um listen to music you wouldn't normally listen to have someone wait on your table uh you know be, you know enjoy uh, a different furniture and lighting and appreciate the company of people that you you know, don't live with that you want to catch up with and 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 talk to, and of course, then alcohol plays into that as well as a mm. kind of social lubricant for conversation. That you know, obviously, you, you can have too much lubrication, um, and then the machine doesn't work that well <laughs> in that case as well. Uh, it needs oiling to an extent, I believe, but not yes. too much oil uh, can overheat. Um, so. It's nice to sort of position this outside of your normal sphere, the place where you work, the place where you live. It's a separate place that you can enter and exit, you know, with whenever whenever you feel comfortable doing either. You, if you, if you, you know, if anyone's ever had a house party um, that's gone wrong, you'll have experienced that sensation of, 
oh my God, this thing's got completely out of control and I don't know how to get these people out of here. Uh, I have. Start hoovering. Start hoovering. That's a brilliant Start hoovering. <laughs> like a maniac. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, that's why we need bars, basically. I mean, but, you know, the origin of bars, of course, they're public houses. They started off as houses. Mm. And uh, the, you know, became increasingly public and, 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 and less house as, as time went on. And that's why we changed the name to pub. And it's why pubs feel so familiar in terms of, you know, they feel like a home from 50, 100 years ago. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, they're sort of, in, in a sense, these purpose designed spaces for social interaction. They're almost like a, st- a setting, a stage um, for communication, for conviviality, for the dispensing of drinks um, that you can that you can go to and then leave uh, when mm. when you've had enough, or mm. not leave when you've had enough and get kicked out. <laughs> Let's not talk about all the times that you're in bars, Tris, for now. <laughs> <laughs> but so um, so, Kriegs, I, I read a, a very nice sort of like phrase um, in a book about connection. In that we are wired for connection. That that it, there is in our um, biology this desire to, or this primal need, in fact, to connect with others. Uh, And in fact, more recent research has shown that people who have limited social interactions or social connections will live shorter, sadder lives. Um, So what does that say for how we've evolved and and the nature of like connection with others in that, you know, we we need it? I think it says, it says a lot about the fact that in some ways, a social connection is one of the primal nutrients of our lives. You know, we think of food, we think of oxygen, we think of water, but another one of the great consumables is the company we spend with one another. We would perish, at least metaphorically and certainly emotionally, without that connection with other people. Um, certainly the numbers show it, as we, the three of us have discussed. Um, Dr. Vivek Murphy, who is, or Murphy rather, um, who was the Surgeon General under the Obama administration and will be the new Surgeon General under the incoming Biden administration. Um, I am not revealing my partisan appeal here. Um, <laughs> he fist pumped. He fist pumped. <laughs> I can't take that back. Um, he has uh, determined that. Um, being in a state of loneliness, which is very different from being alone and being happy. Mm. And there are some people who live alone and are very contented like that. But loneliness has the same deleterious effect on human health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Um, Another researcher, uh, Julia Holt Lundstad out of Brigham Young University, has found that uh, people who are chronically lonely have a 2.4 times greater risk of dying of any cause within a fixed period than people who have healthy social connections. The immune system, as Nicholas Christakis of Yale University has determined, suffers from... um, from loneliness. I mean, we are wired in such a way that our outside world, we're sort of, you know, we see ourselves as these self-contained organisms, but we really are very semi-permeable and our relationships with other people enter our bodies in the same way that food enters our bodies, that, that water enters our bodies, that alcohol enters our bodies. It just becomes part of who we are. Um, 
a lot of this has deep, deep evolutionary roots, obviously. Um, you know, being part of a tribe meant that you were protected from the other tribe. It's the reason that, you know, you go over the valley into the next hill and you see the next tribe. That tribe is a menace to you. So you cleave more closely to your own tribe. One of the worst and most, well, it's, I mean, in some ways, it's a capital, it's capital punishment, was when people are excommunicated or banished from the tribe. To be banished to the darkness beyond the circle of the campfire light, either for misbehavior or some other reason, was one of the most feared and most terrible penalties that could be brought on people. And we've seen it formalized in, again, church excommunication and people being blackballed from clubs and universities, um, in people being uh, dishonorably discharged from the army. All of these things are our brotherhoods and our sisterhoods. And we miss that fraternity. We miss that sorority if mm -hmm. it's taken away from us. So it's just something, it isn't a literal nutrient, but it's an emotional nutrient so powerful that we can, in a very real way, starve emotionally without it, without these connections. Mm -mm. And I suppose, uh, and now's a good good segue into the year that we've been living through. In that, you know, we've been living a year of very being very disconnected, and um, COVID has impacted the way that we socialise. Um, so we've been forced. Here we are talking. I mean, this is great because you're in New York and we're in the UK. But you know, we have we've been fed a diet of Zoom over the last sort of nine, ten months. So. Is is this sort of virtual communication um, and connection sufficient? Is this um, is this enough? Well, um, doesn't I feel would, enough. <laughs> it, it, it certainly doesn't feel enough. I mean, and we've talked about this a little bit before that um, whether you're in a bar or um, just face to face over dinner or just in a living room chatting, you miss so many clues. You miss the the tactile clues, you know, even if and this doesn't even have to be romantic, but if you're sitting at a bar and you reach over across somebody else to get the peanuts, you are invading that person's space or not necessarily invading that person's space. You're entering that person's space. That creates a certain sense of intimacy. If I reach across and enter your space, the fact that you don't then recoil indicates I trust you to be cl physically closer to me in this space. Mm -hmm. This is what when when I'm on a computer and if you're speaking too softly or I can't hit you, hear you, I can just hit a button and raise your volume. Well, that's a unilateral control panel, which is very different from my leaning in to mm. hear what you're saying, which creates a certain level of intimacy. You know, obviously when people are together in a bar, there can be a certain sexual tension if it's people of the opposite sex or the same sex, depending on orientations. Um, and there can be a brushing of the hands when you reach for the peanuts, say, that can have a certain sexual frisson to it. But there can also be a non-gendered frisson, a non-sexual frisson to it. I will have routinely, if I'm talking to a male friend in a bar and I say something that I think was hurtful or something that made him uncomfortable, I may spontaneously just touch his forearm and say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. And mm. that creates a certain intimacy that we just don't get in Zoom. It's nice mm. to see faces. It's nice to hear voices, but 
we ain't in the same room. We're, you know, thousands of miles apart. No, I, would, exactly. I would say there's a, a number of differences between the two. And um, the, the one, one thing is that our normal social interaction, let's say, for example, the three of us sat around a table in a bar or, you know, in Claire's kitchen, uh, we have a pretty strong, like, etiquette rule book that defines what can and can't be done. Um, and that's based on thousands of years of evolution and social interaction. Um, you know, we're not born knowing, you know, manners and, and the correct etiquette to have in a social situation, but it's trained into us at a pretty young age. And, you know, unless you're a sociopath, you more or less follow those rules. Um, but with social media, and, and social media is, you know, quite a broad range of communication methods. So we, you've got Zoom, which we're doing right now. Um, that's sort of one side of it and quite a kind of passive um, side of it, I would say. But then, you, of course, you have Facebook and, and Instagram and, and, and YouTube and so on. In a situation like this where we are able to mute each other or increase volume or, you know, walk out of the room um, unexpectedly, it, there's a, it almost requires a different rule book in order to manage what the correct etiquette is to to attempt to build positive, nutritious, social interactions. And none of us are taught this. I mean, we, people, we should be getting taught this at school now. Uh, it, really, mm -hmm. it really ought to be in the syllabus. Uh, you know, correct conduct online, um, mm -hmm. how to interact digitally since not just in a pandemic, but presumably in, in the future, we're gonna be required to communicate more and more in this, in this, this manner. And there are positives to it. There, we we wouldn't be able to do this uh, podcast right now if it weren't for uh, these platforms. We wouldn't be able to connect in the way we are connecting now. I'm gonna, you know, leave this podcast eventually. Uh, I hope, uh, but I'm enjoying it by the way. Um, and I will feel afterwards that I've spent time with the both of you. It it will mm. be a sort of a surface veneer style of interaction, not the real thing, but it'd be better than nothing. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, we, we can, we can talk a lot about how um, damaging social media can be, but I think when, um, you know, it's, it can be quite benign and, and calls like this and conversations like this can be, to be super positive and, and, you know, at, at least average, um, substitution for for real social interaction face to face um, mm. in the same room. Uh, you know, it's if it, it, calls like this require you to fit within this certain style of conversation. It's not sort of acceptable to stare off into the distance uh, and and like fixate on something that's happening on the other side of the room. We are looking at ourselves, looking at each other. Mm. And that requires a certain regimen of concentration that is unnatural. In If we've sat at a bar, the three of us, and had to stare at each other <laughs> while we all talked. We'd be in love. Be... <laughs> we would be in love. <laughs> that sort of rigidity would feel unnatural, as yeah. it should. Um, there ought to be, in, in good, positive, nutritional uh, social interaction, um, an allowance of drifting off and thinking about something else or, or talking to someone else or listening to someone else and sort of 
veering in and out of the conversation naturally. No one mm. should, you know, really admonish you for doing that in in a, in a bar environment where there's lots going on around. And we don't get that. We don't, we are required to sort of leave some of that natural flow of, of discussion, uh, you know, on the desk when we sign into a Zoom call. Mm. And we're required to sort of, sign up to each other's um uh, we're, we're required to not sit <laughs> i was gonna say sit through each other's shit <laughs> well, that out. We're, we're signing up to a Don't conversation on the next christmas greeting for 10 years i've enjoyed it we're signing up and agreeing to a conversation that requires a, a, a significant amount of our attention and if mm. you're not being attentive to that conversation, then what are you doing there? You're being rude. And that's mm. where it differs dramatically from a natural social interaction in a bar or in a house or walking down the street. And I'm sorry, Claire, you were about to ask a question. Um, no, no, no. I, I, was, I was just going to say that um, the conversation I had earlier um, with Professor Dunbar from Oxford University, named Jock Klang, um, he mentioned actually it, took, it takes 25 years to learn how to be social. And that assumes that you've been exposed to what he called, which I love, the sand pit of life. So that the resilience that you get from having sand kicked in your face, physically, metaphorically, and being able to recover, um, and all of the the sort of the complex um, social interactions that we have, and the way to navigate this complex world is through a battery of behaviours that we learn over that twenty five years. And what's probably more worrying about social media is that if you, as a child, are exposed to many screens or um, you know, lots of this sort of interaction that those cues, those behaviors, that ability to read or to respond or to be more resilient in life will be lost. And, and therefore, when you do have to go out into society, your relationships will be very challenging. Um, and that compounds this idea that, or not idea, but compounds the, the fact that there is this growing epidemic of loneliness, that this is one of the um, results of, you know, social media use. I think that's true. And I think, uh, apropos a little bit of what, um, what Tristan was saying, I think there is no way of getting away from the power of the eyes and either eye contact or lack of eye contact. Um, and sometimes lack of eye contact does not mean coldness. If I'm sitting at a bar with one of you and we're talking about something, and especially if it's something intimate, and Claire or Tristan, I notice your gaze pass away for a moment, that tells me something, that's powerful. That means I'm either making this person uncomfortable, which I, is important information for me, or I am making this person think, and that's a good thing. And in the same way, when we're all thinking of something, we look up so that we're not distracted and process our thoughts. And I think, oh, now this is teaching me something else about, about um the nature of the conversation and the person I'm with, or Claire, I'm put back to taken back to a moment in the summer of 2019 when we were in New Orleans for tales of the cocktail. And we had a lunch, uh, at a lovely bar counter, um, that was supposed to be a glass of, um, 
of rosé apiece, and I think it was two <laughs> bottles of rosé apiece. Um, <laughs> Shush, thanks. Other people were involved. <laughs> other, other people were involved, yes. That's what I tell myself. Um, but while we were talking, um, I noticed your eyes flick away and... Might be the rosé. <laughs> I wasn't bored, please, if that's what you're suggesting. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. Even before we had a, a, a single thing to drink. But I noticed your eyes flicking away, checking on what the woman behind the bar was selecting as our possible rosé choices. And you pointed it out and said, not that one, something like you didn't like the color of that or whatever it was. Well, that was more than just you picking a good rose day. That was one more example of one of the reasons I like being with you guys when we are out socializing, because I'm not in your industry. So I willingly put myself in your hands. The number of times we've been sitting down at a bar and I've said, do me a favor, guys, just tell me what I'm going to like. That <laughs> creates an intimacy that creates a sense of trust that creates a sense of we all have different hierarchies. I bring certain things into the relationship and you will defer to me in those areas. You guys bring other things into the relationship. Everything except alcohol, basically. Everything. Except <laughs> <laughs> in some cases, but I am sometimes I'm just winging it. Um, <laughs> But that was a moment that I rather liked. It meant I am leaning on my friend Claire and once again trusting her to guide our afternoon. That would never have happened if it were cocktail hour for the three of us right now. It's only mm. quarter to 12, pre-lunch hour in New York. Um, and we all just went into our own kitchens and poured our own glass of wine. The, that mm. whole experience would have been missed. But um, here's, a, here's a kind of extension of that idea of distraction um in social company and IRL in real life um like if someone is fidgeting with their phone while you're in conversation with them at a bar there's not much of a greater kind of diss in my opinion to uh the quality of my conversation because mm -hmm. we we can all agree that social media is largely an inferior form of connection and communication so for someone to be in your company and to revert to social media as opposed to regular conversation suggests that your conversation ain't all that, right? <laughs> and the, the problem is, of course, that it's not just that. It's that social media offers this sort of junk food form of connection that is nutritionally devoid and yet tastes so good at the time, mm. right? Yeah. And you shove it down like a, like a Big Mac. Mm. Um, and that's partly because it's been designed to do that. It sort of plays upon our inherent weaknesses in terms of social connection with things like like buttons, um, but also because it's now omnipresent as well. We have this feed, you know, and there's no irony lost in the fact that it's called a feed because uh, mm -hmm. it generally is feeding you. Mm. Um, but it's a feed that's full of... of um, hot dogs and uh, Big Macs yeah. and ice cream um, that, that tastes great, but ultimately makes you kind of emotionally uh, unhealthy. Uh, mind flabby, uh, mind flabby. Mind flabby, mind flabby. <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it. I mean, I, I, is social media um, triggers dopamine, is that right? Is it the dopamine that, that 
Well, it triggers that expectant dopamine. You hear the ping and you react in a very Pavlovian way, in the same way that slot machines with the constant sound effects and the constant blinking lights are meant to trigger this sense of excitement and expectation. And yes, Mm. we are always, there's one of the great things that makes tobacco addictive is that it doesn't just stimulate you. It triggers the region of the brain that happily expects something. And that's a great feeling when you Mm -hmm. know, I'm going to go home and there's going to be a present from my husband, or I'm about to, I don't know, get an award. We have that sense of pleasant anticipation. Tobacco does that chemically, even if we're not really looking forward to something. And that's one of the reasons it's addictive. Our phones do the same thing, merely picking it up. This holds promise of news. This holds Mm. promise of a compliment. This holds promise of a job opportunity. And the Mm. second it pings, that neurochemical signal is triggered and the anticipation and the expectation is triggered. And that becomes very seductive and extraordinarily distracting. And, and I, I don't know the answer to this because maybe you, you do. Um, it is that dopamine uh, desire stronger than, than the endorphins that you would be getting from the great conversation you're having with your friend or the laughter or, you know, the flirting or, you know, the, the, the dancing, whatever it might be, all of those sort of, sort of endorphin releasing activities that we typically do when we're socializing, are they, is that overridden by the flash of your phone? And is that, does that explain if in some reasons why we just step out of a great conversation to pick up our phone? Right. I don't think it's necessarily overwritten, but I overridden, but I do think it's disrupted because it is a shorter term hit. It is, for lack of a, a, a less bleak analogy, it is a snort of a stimulant, a snort of cocaine. And then you come back to the longer, subtler um, endorphins of being with people you like, being with people you care for. But when you're with people you like and with people you're, you care for, and you are in the midst of a deep and engaged, and as you've said, uh, Tristan, nourishing conversation, and then suddenly, ping, there's this promise of this quick hit of energy and excitement. It distracts, it pulls you away. Even, there have been one study, and we we did this at at, at Time magazine, actually, we instituted a new rule that if you must bring your phone to a morning meeting, it had to be face down because the less you know that's going on on your phone, the more engaged you are, even if you don't pick it up. Just seeing a series of things ping right now as we speak. I just look down at the bottom of my screen and I have a six on my messages icon. That means there are six messages waiting for me. One might be for my daughter. One might be from work. I'm not sure who they're from. But whoever they're from, there's a tiny distraction now in my head that says, I'm enjoying this conversation with Claire and Tristan. But when we get off, the first thing I'm going to do is hit that icon. That shouldn't be happening. I should be more wholly invested in being here with the three of us. It's good you're honest. 
about this, Jeff. And that's why we had to have this intervention um, to speak to you about this. Because I, I don't feel that way about my phone. It's unnatural. Um, and you've got a problem. So, but it's... I am now the PS of our, uh, of our trio. I will be replaced. <laughs> but it's true, though. I mean, a good experiment to conduct on yourself is to try and work out what percentage or how many minutes or seconds of the day you spend more than a meter or two from your phone. Yeah. Um, and for most people, it's close to zero. It might be when you're in the shower. And yeah. even then, you may feel this sort of panicked sensation of, well, I better cut this short. I haven't quite finished cleaning myself yet. But there may be a message <laughs> waiting for me that, that it's more important than uh, that. More important than basic hygiene. Yeah. It's, it's really so... Uh, I think it's so toxic and yet, you know, like all things that are toxic, um, it, it's so addictive. I mean, it's, yeah. yeah, my phone is literally, I literally, as we were talking about phones, I just touched it. Yeah. <laughs> I can see it, but I want, needed to feel it to make yeah. sure it was there. Like, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, so I just want to talk a little bit about uh, this, this idea then that, you know, socialising um, can help to save lives. It, it might seem like a bit of an extreme statement, but we know, um, and clues, as you mentioned, um, uh, Dr. Murphy's uh, work on loneliness and, and his great book on togetherness, you know, really talking about um, th this growing epidemic of loneliness. And we think of, I think, loneliness as something that has always been with us, you know, as long as we've been human, perhaps we've experienced feelings of loneliness. But actually, there's a great um, article, if anybody wants to look it up, called The History of Loneliness, that, that really talks about how the concept is relatively modern um, and, and really refers to us being very far away from our neighbours. Includes when you mentioned that, you know, you're being banished out into the wilderness or away from the warmth of the firelight. So it, it's interesting to me that, you know, we are building worlds in which we are becoming increasingly more disconnected. We're taking our, ourselves away from the firelight. It's no longer that we're being banished by uh, the people around us. We are ourselves, we're banishing ourselves as it were. We're, we're building, you know, walls to separate, uh, separate us from society. We're attaching ourselves to screens. And, and I suppose this does, does this tell us a little bit about why we're feeling so lonely in the 21st century? Clues. Um, oh, well, it does and it doesn't. There's an interesting study by Gene Twenge of the University of California, San Diego, who has um, established a very close cause and effect between feelings of depression and isolation and increased social media use. And the more social media people use, the higher they score on um, on measures of depression and loneliness. But she cautions that the cause and effect is unclear um, because we don't know if if social media makes people lonely and depressed, or if lonely and depressed people who don't socialize well are drawn to social media. And she has not been able to tease out those particulars yet. The threads are tangled, mm -hmm. but they haven't been separated. Um, there is though another study, and I'm forgetting off the top of my head who conducted it, um, but it showed that particularly in the Gen Z generation, which is, 18 to, I forget what the ages are, but uh, they are- Younger than us. 
younger than well everyone is younger than us <laughs> there are ranges younger than me at this point um, <laughs> that uh it showed that 43 percent of people in this um generation are called have now describe their interpersonal real world social connections as in some way lacking or unsatisfactory and this cannot be connected to anything other than social media than social media being um what's called the social displace displacement theory there's a third theory <clears throat> that sees social media as a zero sum game it's not that you can you can integrate comfortably social media and real media the social displacement theory says for every step i take into social media is one step i'm taking away from real human connection and i think yeah. if that indeed is a sound theory it's one of the things that's driving this 43% level of social dissatisfaction among the gen z generation Mm. I think because my question was going to be, you know, is, can the hospitality industry, can bars, restaurants, places where we do, you know, meet together, can 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 we help at all? Is there anything that we can be doing more of to sort of reach out to those who feel it, are feeling socially displaced or, or by dint of there being social media and it being so compelling? Will we will our reliance on hospitality be eroded? Uh, look, I think um, in some respects, social media is sort of based on, uh, you know, traditions of, of um, socializing. In many ways, it's, it's tribal. Um, you have, you know, groups for this, forums for that. Um, and in bars and, and hospitality venues, you know, also tend to al or often align themselves with certain, um, you know, classes or age groups of people or um you know people with a lot of money or very little um and they 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 function quite well as that um and and for for many people they they serve as a positive space even though you know there's a tribal element to it i mean if you go back far enough um a lot of the uh early coffee houses in london were um very much themed spaces so they started out as as venues that served coffee and this is sort of early 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 to mid 1600s started out as, as venues that served coffee and then quickly sort of similar like-minded people started clustering together in these in these coffee houses and before too long coffee was very much a secondary feature of these venues and and they became um you know themed uh, third spaces around such things as uh, you know trading or the colonies, politics, poetry, the arts, uh, insurance, your journalism. Uh, I mean, you know, you had uh, magazines like Tatler. Tatler was originally a coffee house. It was the name of a coffee house in London. Lloyd's, wow. the big insurance company in London. Lloyd's was the name of a coffee house. So this sort of idea of of separating ourselves into um tribes tribe tribes is a bit of a loaded term now i mean everyone's so polarized with their opinion you're either left or you're right or you're you know this or you're that but i think a little bit a little bit of tribalism a seasoning of it can be really useful um it can can help um further your thoughts on specific subjects and grow um you know decide where you stand on specific topics and i think that the the bars and restaurants have have fostered that sort of growth and learning over the years 
Um, uh, Newton, um, I think he delivered one of his sort of great scientific um, sermons in one of the coffee houses in London. Um, or maybe, no, maybe it wasn't Newton's, but born Newton's time, isn't it? Anyway, a bit after Newton's time. One of them. Yeah, one of them, one of those scientists. Um, <laughs> They're all the same. Yeah, it's all the same kind of thing. Um, so and 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 social media sort of performs the same role i think i mean it, it can it can be a great place for you know if you want if you want to learn if you want to find something out these days you just go to the forum um online the reddit or whatever that discusses that particular topic and you can quickly zone in on people that are encountering the same problems and doing the same things and so face value it offers a a, a level of social connection um, and a specificity of social connection that is unparalleled. You, you know, if I, if I want to find out how to wire up my camper van, I can't just go down to my nearest pub and start asking around, hey, anyone got any experience with this? But I can socially access that information and discuss it at some sort of social level within the next five minutes if I want to. Mm. The, the problem with it and this sort of insidious nature of it is when it gets connected with money making and with with um advertising and when it's attempting to capture your attention and hold it for as long as possible and that's when you know you get recommendations you get uh, of of you know you might you're watching this video so you might like to watch this one too oh jesus yeah i would how did you know <laughs> Uh, well, because, you know, very smart people are creating algorithms that, that recommend one video to another. It's when you find that on your Facebook feed conversations that maybe, uh, you know, a little bit more antagonistic are popping up as opposed to the ones that are just about kittens or, you know, about, you know, something more mundane. Um, turns mm -hmm. out that our attention, attention is, you know, more easily captured when, there are, uh, you know, polarizing opinions and, and heated discussion taking place. We're more likely to look, we're more likely to comment ourselves, we're more likely to linger around and observe these conversations. And that that's really where I think social media becomes dangerous uh, mm -hmm. because the, uh, the, the, what am I trying to say? It's the chamber type notion, right? right? The, 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 the sense that it may become an echo chamber. Yeah, the sense that it become an echo chamber and just the sense that it's taking us down a sort of pathway of, of communication, of connection, that um, is not necessarily being... It's, it's almost taking our vulnerabilities and using them to sort of steer our route into dialogue uh, rather than taking, you know, the positive things, things that... Um, we enjoy and that we like and that we want to connect with other people about or that are healthy for us to connect to other people mm. about because mm. you're talking about um you know basically the the insidious side of technology and mm. um you know what it what it does well to bring us together but when it goes bad when shit goes bad <laughs> that um uh what's it called the social dilemma dilemma oh yeah. But even after watching that, I still was like, oh, let me just post something on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, it's mad, isn't it? Do you know what? One thing I took from that is that governments are so poorly set up for social media. I mean, you don't have 
um, a cyber minister, for example. I know. I, I don't, that, that's probably a minister for technology, maybe? Technology, yeah. But have I, you heard him talk about it? No. It's like he's still on MySpace. Well, this, this is the thing. But this is the thing with MPs, right? I mean, they are <laughs> elected, uh, you know, in their local constituency and then assigned this, you know, right, your, your transport, your health, uh, and they then have to sort of learn on their feet. They're, and sure, they've probably got advisory teams around them, but really the, the people that are running these shouldn't, shouldn't even be MPs. It should just be, you know, scientific, science, groups of scientists or people yeah. who are specialists within these fields. Yeah. Um, because to have, you know, some power-hungry two-bit Tory who, uh, you know, decided it would be fun to impress his mum by coming an MP, suddenly in charge of, like, tech policy for the UK is ridiculous. No. Because he's got a thousand followers on Instagram or something. And so yeah. they're like, oh, well, look, Dave's got a profile. Give him yeah, the job. He can have that one. <laughs> that job. He likes the social medias. Um, so, um, so, so we're going to get into now this sort of like notion of like togetherness and technology, which I think you know, is a nice segue from what Tristan was talking about from uh, the sense of, you know, technology, as we've learned this year, has actually been very useful for us because we wouldn't have been able to work, communicate, or all that sort of things. But, you know, technology is incredibly powerful. And, you know, when linked to advertising can be um, quite dangerous, I think, particularly as our, our attention gets monetized. Um, but I think, you know, I don't know if you remember, I hope you remember, but about a year ago, we were talking about doing a seminar for Tales, and we were looking at um, how, uh, what the future of our bars, restaurants, uh, places of connection might look like um, because we were seeing this growing use of um, social media and being attached to screens and things. And um, I feel a bit weird about that pitch now because it seemed a bit um, prescient because uh, I'll give you as a reminder, this was a a bit of the synopsis. It said, the bar used to be the place to eat, to eat to drink, to eat, to socialize, to flirt. But in an age where we drink less, have our food delivered, meet and meet and mate via our phones, what role will the future bar, future bar play? When socializing has changed beyond all recognition, what will be the purpose of cocktails in a beautiful bar with fantastic glassware and welcoming staff? And now I wrote that back in, I don't know, November and December, so a year ago. And it almost seems as though I am to blame for COVID because maybe I, <laughs> maybe I, I don't know, I summoned I knew it. you were patient zero. <laughs> Did I summon it? Did I? Uh, You're a harbinger. Yes, exactly. But, you know, back then we were really seeing how technology could take us away from the bar, take us away from each other, um, and this could be our future. And I don't, having lived through that kind of very future world this year uh, and allowed us to really fully experience what that might feel like, I, I don't know about you, but I'm really, really now looking forward to getting back into bars and restaurants more than ever. So I'm wondering, my question to you is, that, you know, do you think that after this year, what might hospitality look like? I mean, I know that the landscape will probably uh, will irrevocably change. There'll be bars that unfortunately don't exist anymore after this year, which is uh, bars, restaurants, clubs, whatever. So that so the landscape will have changed. But what do you think our feelings will be towards going back out there? Well, I'll certainly defer to Tristan on how the business of the bar will change. Um, 
I would think that there will be a mad stampede back to the actual experience of the bar. Remember, there is so much ritual associated with a the bar. There's the 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 process of stepping in the front door up there, typically dimly lit, and what lighting there is is imaginative and is warm and sort of buttery yellow generally. You've immediately entered a place that looks and feels warm. There's a, unless it's a rowdy football bar, there's a pleasant thrum of conversation that can be very soothing, that can be very grounding. There's the search for the bar seat, for the bar stool. And now I'm thinking about if you're going alone, if you're going with another person, it's more or less the same thing. Um, But you find your spot, you say hello to the bartender. If you're with the person, if you're with another person, there's the ritual of settling in and deciding what you want. If you're not with another person, there's the ritual of scanning the room and seeing if there's anyone to your right or your left who you may want to get to know. All of this, the bartender coming up to you, introducing himself or herself, picking the drink, asking what the bartender would recommend. All of these are sort of the stations of the cross of an evening at the bar. And all of this has been lost. We can all drink at home. It is simply not the same thing. And I think that what we will want to come back to will be those warm ceremonial feelings of being at a bar in a day that we used to shake hands all the time. And we hope that that will come back in the future, mm-hmm. shaking the hand of the bartender who introduces himself or herself and shaking the hand and thanking and tipping generously. When you leave, these are all ways of establishing connection, fraternity, sorority, and it's all missed. I think there's going to be a stampede back to bars in order mm-hmm. for people to have that rich and very warm and loving social experience. Mm. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think in the short term, there's going to be a huge demand to get back to bars and to sort of experience that 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 sense of, of uh, friendship and connection that we've all been denied over the past year for the most part. Um, but I think in the longer term future that we're going to start to see almost two types of bar um, become available. One of those types, I think, will evolve with our technology. I think that, uh, you know, as we become increasingly connected still um, through uh, the cloud and the internet and um, through the technology that will evolve and, you know, Neuralink, where we have, you know, this this connection available 24-7, just, you know, by thought alone, perhaps, um, where phones become part of us, uh, you know, eventually, um, there will be a certain type of bar that will evolve to accommodate for that. Um, a bar that understands your mood, your preferences, a bar that markets specific drinks to you based on uh, what you've drunk before, what you've enjoyed before, who you're with, the time of day, the weather, the sports that are going on nearby, um, a sort of intelligent, connected style of bar that is designed to offer you the perfect night out based on you know, a number of different uh, input factors. The other type of bar, though, will be the pub. It will be the traditional bar. It will be this sort of historical relic of of human interaction of of positive social togetherness 
that will, um, you know, despite all of our technological endeavors, be a better place to spend your time. It won't be mm. personalized. It will have perhaps a moody, <laughs> moody old bartender behind the bar polishing glasses with a dirty <laughs> rag. <Yeah. laughs> um, but it will somehow feel more natural. It will feel more homely. It will feel more human place to mm. be. And um, I look forward to pubs and traditional venues um, sustaining and, and continuing to be there for a long, long time because these are the places that we have been appreciating and enjoying for hundreds of years. And um, there's a reason why they are such effective places to meet and enjoy each other's company because there is a specific formula there. It's not talked about very much. It's not written down very much. But that's because it doesn't need to be. It's so mm. well understood by all of us that go there. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's a pub in the UK. It's perhaps not really a dive bar, but a divier bar in the US where you've got a great bartender who's who's working the room. Who It's a well-oiled machine. It's a comfortable place to be. There's no, you know, requirements of class or status or dress code on the door. Uh, you just go there as yourself and you're accepted. As long as you pay your bill, then it's fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think perhaps this year we've been, uh, we're a bit endorphin deficient. Where have we got our endorphins from this year? Where has the laughing, the singing, the dancing, the flirting, the touch, the kissing, you know, all of that stuff. Where that's where have we got that from? Um, you know, unless you'll be lucky enough to have those things at home. But as you say, the bar, the pub, that's the place where we often get a lot of our endorphins from. And to be denied that, um, I don't think that we could uh, continue in that vein forever. Uh, where would we get that sort of stimulus from if it wasn't for the, the bar or the pub? Yeah, it does seem to be a place that that fosters all of that. I mean, look, you know, there is the hello embrace. There is, you know, the 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 warm handshake. There is, as I was saying before, all of those bits of conversational, physical touching. And then there's the hug goodbye at the end of the evening when maybe you're a little sappy or a little more sentimental because you're a little bit tipsy. But all of that, all of that intimacy. Mm. Yeah, and, and and like even um, you know, I'll get this round, gestures yeah. like that, uh, or save my seat, or you know, they, these kind of things. They're sort of social cues that really solidify relationships, mm. and you know, it's difficult to manufacture them over a digital connection i'm not sure how you do it yeah yeah and there's also there's something about caretaking um you know i was mentioning to claire a story recently when we were and i won't use names in the story but um we were all at tales of the cocktail and um we had a group facebook message um center so we could all communicate and one of the younger women in our group um, no one had seen her in the last 10 minutes and somebody, let's call her Jane Doe, somebody, you know, one of the guys in the group said, hey, anyone got eyes on Jane Doe? And someone 
wrote back and said, all good, mate. Uh, I just walked her back to the hotel. And the first person who asked that said, "Okay, leave no person behind. You know, that was to me one of the sweetest moments in in. what could have been otherwise just a vulgar pub crawl because it was everyone looking out for everyone. The number of times, and maybe this makes me out to be patriarchal, but the number of times that I have left a bar with a single woman with whom I've been drinking and, you know, gotten her into a cab and then made it a point to look at the cab driver's license plate or said to the person I was sending home, you know, text me when you get there. Those are little, those are the grace notes of human engagement. Those are the caretaking moments of human engagement. You know, we're out, alcohol is, can be bad boy, bad girl behavior. You want to make sure Nobody gets hurt by bad boy, bad girl behavior. And I think that kind of caretaking is one final way that we all bring one another together. Mm, thank you. So Tristan Stevenson, Jeffrey Kluger, thank you so much for joining me on the Spritzing Hour today. It's been more than an hour, so that's good. Um, so looking forward to seeing you back in the real world where we can uh, actually get together and socialize. But thanks for a really enlightening conversation today. Thank you. Thank you for having me.